NVS Fins has made this show possible. And honestly, they have made my surf experience better in the past year and a half or so. And listener feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. We don't do a ton of these partnerships, but this specific one is a prime example of how it should work. It's a win for you, it's a win for me, and it is a win for them. They make fins for surfboards, and their Apex series is superior to whatever you're accustomed to riding by virtue of the G10 autoclave laminated fiberglass that they use, which yields a dense, lean construction allowing the most refined edges and foils that exist in the industry. But what I wanna to highlight today is their customs program for surfboard shapers. For all of you board builders out there who have conceived of fin templates and designs but were not able to meet the minimum orders from other fin manufacturers, Leif and Jamin at NVS are here for you. No job is too small. Album Surfboards has a line of fins with NVS. Dan Man has a line. A small manufacturer that is working on river surfboards in Oregon developed a hatchet style fin with NVS after hearing me talk about them here on the podcast. And he is kindly sending me a set of twin fins as a thank you. So shout out to Travis at Cubicle Brand. And then also months ago, um, one listener emailed me to tell me that he got NVS to make him a single custom set of fins just as a one-off. So no job is too small nor too big for NVS. So that's really what's kind of beautiful about a small industry like surfing is that you can have small brands that offer the highest quality product, personal and direct customer service, and also the lowest price surfnvs.com is their website our promo code is the word podcast you'll save 20 percent, and you will support us surfnvs.com promo code podcast thank you and enjoy okay okay you ready we got are we on you ready okay my name is jack murphy and we're taking you on a trip that uh has already been in the papers and the magazines for 50 years, most of it. But it's a trip of the, uh, that is uh, an exciting adventure. It was the middle of the night on October 29, 1964. Jack Roland Murphy, better known as Murph the Surf, a man widely recognized as one of the top surfers in the world at the time, was in New York City. That night, Jack and a man named Alan Kuhn broke into the American Museum of Natural History and pulled off what was at that time the biggest jewel heist in American history. But that's just the beginning of Jack's improbable story, one that includes robbery, fame, and depending on who you ask, salvation. This season we will follow Jack on his journey from California to Pittsburgh to Miami, all the way up to New York City. To tell his story though, we must also go down to Whiskey Creek, a small river in southern Florida where, 51 years ago, the bodies of two young women were found stabbed, bludgeoned, and shot. They had been weighed down by concrete blocks lashed to their necks. And the last time they were seen alive, they were getting in a boat with Jack Roland Murphy. Thank you. 
Today's episode is with Nathan Scott, producer and host of The Sneak, a true crime podcast for USA Today and Wondery. Our chat is centered around one Jack Roland Murphy, AKA Murph the Surf, convicted murderer, jewel thief, responsible for the single largest heist in American history and national surfing champion. Jack Roland Murphy is the subject of season two of The Sneak, and it's a nine-part series that launches today, Wednesday, July 29th, and a layer over the course of the next nine weeks. Journalist Nathan Scott spent a year on this story, spending time with Jack Roland Murphy, talking to Murphy's former friends, colleagues, surviving family members of the victims whose murders Murphy served prison time for, and then talking to Murphy again after all of that to verify details, confront him on incorrect information that he had provided, and ask him about facts that simply don't check out. All of this culminates over the series of this nine-part podcast series, and Nathan and Jack's friendship ends in one heated final confrontation in the final podcast episode of the series. You can find and subscribe to The Sneak now in whatever podcast app you're listening to this episode of Surf Splendor in. If you are a fan of um, Dirty John, S-Town, Dr. Death, this fits right in that same vein. And this Murph the Surf story was something that I had heard referenced a number of times over the years, mainly that he was an East Coast surfer and board builder who was responsible for the largest jewel heist in American history. I knew that he was a board builder. I knew that he had a shop in uh, Indy Atlantic, Florida, but it seemed that his connection to the surf world ended in the mid 60s. And that's perhaps because his preceding years involved crime. So a lot of the people kind of from his surf life probably kept their distance from him. But the fact is Jack Roland Murphy is a fascinating character. And I was really eager to hear from Nathan about getting to know Jack and about the risk and the thrill of investigating the life of a convicted murderer. Needless to say, it is very interesting. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Nathan Scott. Enjoy. Where does this podcast find you? I am in Tyson's Corner, Virginia at the USA Today newsroom right now where um, I am recording the last little bits of this podcast before we put it out in the world. So much more professional than my podcast. Not only the setup, but the way that you've even structured your life. You come in on one day, you bang out all the ad reads at once. I'm constantly playing catch up and like doing little bits and pieces here and then cobbling it together. It's very, yeah, that's how working on this show has made me, uh, uh, and also working with our engineer on this show, who is a brilliant musician and, and audio engineer. He has made, he's turned me into an audiophile nerd now, and now I have to record it perfectly in studio or else I, it drives me insane. Good. Good for you. Um, we need professionals like you leading the space. <laughs> Um, but let's, before we get into the actual story of Murph the Surf, tell me about your background as a journalist and as it relates to podcasting. Yeah. So I 
have kind of been all over the place as a journalist. Um, I started out as a crime reporter outside Boston, uh, which kind of gave me a bit of the uh, investigatory bug, as we joke, um, the investigative bug. And uh, from there, I actually moved down to New Orleans. I went to school down there, uh, did grad school, and then I, I started writing about New Orleans, uh, New Orleans music, actually. And then out to San Francisco and then out to uh, finally ended up in D.C. And in D.C., I've been working uh, on a sports blog for a while with USA Today. And then a few years back, I actually went to uh, Vox Media and joined SB Nation. And when I was there, I was an editor and one of the reporters I was working with, he and I worked on a, a college football what we perceived as a podcast uh, and a written story eventually turned into a, a documentary, actually, and that uh, we did an investigation into basically how college football players are paid in, in the Deep South. And uh, we released that uh, on the Verizon Go 90 network, which then folded immediately because uh, <laughs> this is media in 2020. And uh, it's up on YouTube now. It's called Foul Play. And we worked on that. And then USA Today, where I kind of started my career, reached out about me returning. And, and part of the reason they wanted me to return to, was to work on more ambitious, long-form kind of storytelling. And at first, we were thinking documentary. And then I told them what the budget of our documentary was. And they said, well, maybe podcast. And I said, all right, maybe podcast. So from there, we, we kind of conceived of this idea of a serialized true crime podcast in and around the sports space and, and we didn't want to be limited by sports stories necessarily but ones in which athletes either featured prominently or the sport somehow informed the narrative in some way and so we did season one which was about a college football player who uh, robbed a armored car and then escaped in an inner tube down a river and now season two is Murph the Surf. Um, were you listening to podcasts prior and were there any shining examples that you were kind of referencing? So my co-producer and I, uh, my co-producer is a guy named Anthony Pachillo, who I actually grew up with. And Anthony is an incredible writer in Hollywood and he has sold some scripts to AMC and he worked in the Game of Thrones writing room and he's a super talented guy. And he and I have always wanted to work on a project together and we both simultaneously stumbled upon a podcast called Up and Vanished, which I don't know if you've heard. And Yeah, I've listened to it. It's amazing. There was something delightful for us about he was recording it in real time. And for us, we're both huge noir fans. And for us, the, the podcast medium was allowing this guy to chase down red herrings and kind of as they were happening, not in a way that was like slickly post-produced and kind of obvious. It felt very visceral and very immediate. And that was for us, that was the show that was sort of like, okay, this is a touchstone for what we want to do. We want to make a, a true crime podcast that's as much about the act of the investigation as it is about kind of pure storytelling. And that's sort of where we came from and... and for us, that was kind of always the, the fun part of it, watching the sort of investigators kind of go after these stories and try and uncover what happened. And, and that's sort of where we got the idea. For listeners 
uh, to flesh that uh, that story out for listeners who haven't listened to Up and Vanished. Um, basically, rather than recording the entire piece and then editing it and releasing it all in pieces, he was releasing episodes as he was recording them. So information, he was chasing down a missing person story and he'd release an episode and then get new information, um, evidence, clues, essentially, that would help him track the leads and then publish another episode. So from week to week, you were actually watching the story unfold um, as it was happening live without being able to Google what the answer was. You know, it was really fascinating. But I, one other detail, sorry, I'm in a flight path. You can sometimes hear no planes. Um, what was interesting that I didn't think about at the time, but you just kind of touched on was the lo-fi aspect of it was really charming. I feel like if you're watching a Netflix show, you expect it to have a certain sheen and polish on it. But there, this medium, the podcast medium is so new at this point that you like, it's actually endearing to hear an underproduced, you know, lo-fi version. And they made a season two, which was excellent, but it was very clear that they had gone out and hired a real team and, and really done yeah. it. And it was great and, and excellent, but it was a very different podcast than season one. And, and we actually initially pitched the idea of recording and releasing in real time. And our lawyers shut that down pretty quickly at USA Today because there are some moments in, in season one of Up and Vanished where he goes after people and names names and, oh, whoops, it turns out they're not involved and that guy i mean good for them for not being sued for libel but usa today wasn't willing to take that risk but yeah the, of course. the way we kind of recreated or tried to recreate those moments of magic was that we would actually record our conversations as we were researching so every time anthony would call me to discuss a break in the case we turn the recorder on so you can kind of we wanted to try and preserve those moments and and in season one we have a conversation with my researcher where she comes and brings this piece of evidence that we misplaced or or hadn't seen and she brings it we and we actually caught that moment while we were recording so that was something that we we were very kind of diligent about because we we wanted to create those moments of of kind of surprise or magic and have it feel authentic um my favorite podcast series are centered around a fascinating figure. You know, I don't know if you listen to S town, Yes, but John McLemore, um, dirty John, you know, those people, they're just these kind of larger than life figures. Murph the surf is kind of an ideal podcast character. He is a mythical character out of a comic book. Um, who is he to you and kind of how did you get connected with the story? The story actually came to me from my, my mom of all people. She was uh, a great journalism prof- uh, teacher and a great journalist herself. And she had seen this story and she sent it to me and said, this needs to be season, season two of the podcast. And, and I resisted it at first mostly because it's a story that's been told. Um, yeah. It was in Esquire magazine. It was in the New York Times. It will, they made a they made a freaking major motion picture out of you know Murph the Surf in the 70s or 80s 70s I think, and uh, for me I, I was just thinking all right this is well trod territory, and we moved on we were certain we were going to do a different story, and then that fell through and we kind of came back to it and as we were digging, 
we saw that there were parts of this story that really hadn't been told. And uh, that, that those were the murders, um, which, you know, Jack Murphy rose to fame for being a, a, a child savant and then a national surfing champion, East Coast surfing champion, and then robbed the Museum of Natural History and became mega uber famous for kind of pulling off this jewel heist. And those stories were all well told. Uh, and then he got convicted of murder. And that story was either kind of something tacked on to the end of the story as sort of a weird kind of like, oh, by the way, we forgot to mention this, um, or something that was just outright ignored. Um, and, and so for us, that was something that we thought, okay, the first part of the story has been, been well told. We're going to focus on the second part, which was these murders, and specifically the victims of this murder who uh, really haven't been heard from in 50 years. Yeah, I'm wondering, you can answer this better than I, but I'm just kind of wondering aloud why other people glossed over the murder and the victims in their telling of the story. I know the Sports Illustrated article touched on it a bit, but um, those things, those other things are sexy and they're fun and you can kind of just write easily about them and attract a lot of attention. They're not ugly. Even though the jewel heist is a crime, it's not ugly. The murders become a lot more ugly. The other detail is... Jack admits to those other things, right? Yes. Whereas he never admitted to the murders. Never. So there's a lot more work involved with telling your angle of it. And, and for us, that was the challenge, but also what we thought was worthwhile. You know, Jack will talk about the jewel heist literally for hours. I mean, when we sat down for our big sit-down interview, and he confessed to us later when we had kind of turned the recorders off, he said... You know, one of my gambits is I run the clock. And basically what he would do is he would just speak. And he's so charming and so well-spoken. I mean, with our first question we asked him, I think he spoke for an hour and 10 minutes unbroken, which is crazy. Crazy. I mean, that no one can do. I mean, try and time yourself and talk for five minutes. You can't do it. And he spoke for over an hour unbroken. And I think for other reporters... I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, they glossed over the story, but at least for, you know, when we talked to a reporter from the New York Times, he basically said, you know, the heist happened in New York. It was a New York story. That's what we focused on. And uh, same for uh, Inside Edition. When they did a doc, it was really about the heist. And the heist is always the story because... It's the Museum of Natural History, and they made the Night at the Museum movies about that place, so everyone knows it, and no one got hurt, and it's this sexy crime. And then the story of the murders is confusing and dark and grisly and sad, and Murphy now, I think, realizes he has to sort of talk about it in a way that he didn't in the past. He used to just refuse and shut down if, if anyone asked. Now he, I think he understands he needs to have a narrative around it. It just, the narrative that he now presents doesn't resemble anything we could find by way of, by way of evidence. That's a really careful legalistic way for me of putting that. But he is, his version is one that, uh, his version now of what happened at the murders is one that 
has only sprung up as far as we can tell in the last decade maybe yeah i'm surprised to hear you say that he's more engaged in the conversation because your final conversation with him he was pretty flustered and he didn't like being asked about it still was my impression he has a a, a set script and okay he, the script he gave us at, at parts was almost word for word what he told Vanity Fair. He changed a couple key details. He gave Vanity Fair a name for the, the man he now says pulled the trigger. And with us, the name's now gone. I think he realized that was perhaps something that could be checked. And so now there's no name. Um, but when it comes to actual like details, he has a script and when we tried to follow up, you know, in real time, the first time we sat down with him, uh, I'll admit, like, he, he got me. He, he really, I was furious with myself because I just wasn't sure what he was going to say. And I, and I, in thinking back, I wasn't well enough prepared. Um, yeah. I didn't know, I hadn't read all the legal documents because we hadn't found them yet. And I challenged him on a few things. And he kind of bulldozed me. And it wasn't until months later in, in the call you're referencing that I called him back and I was much better prepared and I was able to catch him on a few things. And that's when, uh, if you stick around to the end of the podcast, he, he really kind of goes. Yeah. And we'll, we'll catch up to that. I'm going to back it up yeah. to kind of the beginning of the story. Um, how, he seems to be accessible. So number one, how did you get a hold of it? How old is he? How'd you get a hold of him? And why did he agree to do this? Jack Murphy's 82 years old. He lives in Crystal River, Florida, which is a small town uh, about an hour north of Tampa. Uh, biggest industry in town is manatee tours. And Jack lives there uh, with his wife. And how we got him was interesting. I called him kind of, or I emailed him, no response. And then I found a phone number on a website linked to a, a, a church group that he runs. He, he, Jack is now uh, born again and, and works with in the prison ministry uh, industry. And I called Jack, he answered. And I said, I want to come down. I want to do an interview. And he didn't really agree to anything, but he didn't not agree to anything. And so, or he didn't kind of say, no, I won't do it. He just sort of said, yeah, yeah, if you get down here, we'll talk. And so kind of on a hunch, we booked a flight. And he had mentioned to me that he was in talks with uh, Hollywood producers about a movie for himself. And when I heard that, I knew we were in because that's how you get all these guys is, is ego and they, they need to want something. And, and I think he wanted that. He thought maybe this would help him get that movie project over the line. And so. Did you explain it as a podcast project? I explained it as a podcast. He didn't fully understand what that was. Uh, right. And it, even a little later, he, he kept asking when, when the story would come out. I, I still think he's waiting for his face to show up on the cover of USA Today, which, I mean, who knows, but I, I doubt right. it. Um, but we talked through it, we explained it. But even then, 
I had not confirmed anything, and we, and we, my co-producer and I just said, screw it, we're going, and we flew down. Um, and what what month and year was this that you did that first flight? This was December, early December of last year, so right before Christmas 2019. Got it. And we showed up, and uh, if my bosses are listening, I'm sorry. I led them on to believe more that, that he was available than he, than he really was. I just figured if we got down there, at the very least, we'd be, t- be able to talk to people in and around the community. But I, I, I had a hunch, and we got lucky on the first night. We told him he was there. He said, all right, maybe I'll see you guys sometime this week. And then an hour later, he was sitting in our booth at the restaurant, and we didn't, he didn't leave our side for four or five days. Yeah, and I mean, I'm glad to detail all of this because it builds – it fills out the picture that I was talking about is he's a fascinating character. He wants you to believe that he's aloof and kind of not interested. However, he's there within an hour and he's desperate for the recognition. And like you said, you ask one question, he talks for over an hour. You know, he cannot kind of subdue his own ego. Yeah. And I mean, he's, it was interesting. I was talking to the CEO of Bill Glass Ministries, which is the uh, ministry group that Jack worked for for decades. And he said, Bill Glass himself, the guy who founded the ministry, described Jack as the most socially mobile person he'd ever met in his life. And I was sort of blown away when they said that. Um, And they also said, you know, Jack Murphy's also, he's a genius. He's the smartest man I've ever met in my life. And he's the most socially mobile. And then I brought up, well, guys, is there a danger that someone that smart and that socially mobile could just be conning you and conning all of us? And they sort of said, you know, I thought about that for a long while, but no, I don't think that anymore. And that was kind of it. So, um, well, the reality is, yes, he can be, but he can also be doing good work through his prison ministry. And that's why he's interesting is he's complex, extremely complex, he can be all those things. Um, and that was something that Brian Byrne said at, at Sports Illustrated when he and I talked, he brought it up and I, and I thought it was really interesting and something I hadn't thought about, which was... Uh, the fact that Jack won't talk about the murders at Whiskey Creek because he uh, is traumatized from them, which is something that I had never really considered. I thought perhaps I'm just a more cynical person than Brian. He's probably a much better human being than I am. But I, I just assumed the entire time he's conning you. He's conning you. Don't let up your guard. Don't let up your guard. Um, while at the same time, you know, totally being charmed by him at times. And he was... Uh, funny and charming and him talking about surfing was beautiful and oddly moving and I, and I wish we could have kept more of that in the podcast and um, clearly someone who is gifted and, and, and can be and has been good you know he hasn't reoffended for decades since since he was let out of prison but uh, also someone which if you hear towards the end of the podcast still has not fully resolved kind of what happened at, at Whiskey Creek. Long before the jewel heist, long before the murders, Jack was a very gifted child. He will be the first to tell you this, but he does so in such a fast talking and scattered way while simultaneously providing really specific details. It often leaves the listener feeling uncertain. Is he so astute and accomplished that these seeming highlights are regular occurrences for him? 
Or is he just a slick charlatan? Most people who encounter Jack don't really have any investment in him nor objective. So rather than trying to figure out whether he is a friend or foe, they simply leave the encounter charmed. And that's universally agreed upon. He is charismatic. Among Jack's long list of self-professed early life endeavors, I was curious if Nathan was able to verify any of these as fact. So Jack grew up in the 40s in California. Uh, his dad was a uh, electrical worker, uh, kind of laying line, and they, they moved all over the place. But one place they were was Southern California in the 40s and, and, and early 50s, where Jack learned to surf at kind of that first kind of period of that taking off. And Jack, um, I won't play armchair psychologist, I will say that if he commits his mind to something, he's going to keep doing it. And he also has more energy than anyone I've ever met before. In my, at 82, we would do eight, 10 hour interview days and he'd want to keep going. He'd want to go to dinner. Or he'd want to go out after dinner with us. And we're there, you know, two guys in our thirties ready to fall asleep. We c- couldn't keep up with him. Um, and he's sharp as attack too. Sharp as attack uh, and brilliant. He was a uh, totally child uh, prodigy at the violin he played with the uh, youth orchestras uh, and I think the California State Youth Orchestra but he was moving around a lot then he also picked up tennis and got so good at tennis that he was recruited to the University of Pittsburgh on a tennis scholarship uh, went there for a year hated the cold drove down to Miami kind of on a on a flight of fancy and then uh, started really making it work in Miami as a, he was actually an acrobat diver with the Flying Walenda Circus. Um, and, and as I say in the podcast, I know this sounds made up and like a bad like novel. And as he was telling me these stories, I was like, come on. And then we looked it up and it's like, oh no, there's footage of him doing these acrobat dives. And, uh, but he also started going up to Coral Beach at this time. And that was when this childhood hobby he had of surfing really started to pick up in a way. And and he said he was one of the first guys he claims to practice on a tow rope behind a boat. And that was what he says allowed him to progress much faster than a lot of other surfers, especially on the East coast at the time where this was just kind of a burgeoning scene. And he quickly kind of became the guy in Florida, you know, he was, he was the guy in, in, in satellite beach and up in that area. And, and he became, uh, you know, the man, uh, in Cocoa beach and in satellite beach, he was, he was the guy and started winning, uh, tournaments started, he won a national championship. And then he opened a surf shop there at that time. And then the surf shop failed and his, his marriage fell apart. And, he moved back down to Miami, kind of put the surfboard away. And he says there, he kind of stumbled into a life of crime and basically talking to some of his friends from that era at the time. And these guys are still around and kind of happy to chat about this stuff. Um, he was the best swimmer. And so whenever they would, they were going to do a score, uh, in, in a, 
in an inlet or a bay or something like that. And they just brought him along in case the heat came and the cops came and they handed him the bag of these jewels and he jumped in the water and swam across Biscayne Bay because he was the best swimmer. And a few days later, they hand him a bag of $15,000 and he says that was it. He just, he had the taste and, and he was off and, off and running. Murphy recounts that specific crime in Nathan's podcast. He escaped by swimming and he presumed that he wouldn't get paid for the job that he had just pulled, but he was happy to get away without being arrested. So he was sitting at a bar trying to think of a way to pay for his $20 bar tab when his partner in crime walked in and handed him that envelope with $15,000. He was hooked. And from that moment on, he leveraged his talents and his charisma to mingle among the elite in Miami or inconspicuously case museums without arousing suspicion. After a number of successes, he ended up on the losing end of a deal, being duped by a woman he had attempted to con. And that loss begat the need for a bigger score next time, which became his best known heist. And, and really he was doing so many so many heists at that time and, and these guys really took it seriously and they got very very good and something that surprised me he told me this and we actually have it recorded we just couldn't find any time to use it in the podcast but maybe we'll release a bonus episode or something on their way up to New York they stopped in DC and Jack and, and his partner Alan Kuhn actually got into the Smithsonian and were they had a jewel collection in the Smithsonian at the time and they were they say he says a few feet away and he describes in great detail where exactly he got in how he got in I mean I, I haven't been able to like look at schematics but what he said kind of checks out and he says they were a few feet away they were about to grab these jewels and a guard came and they just said all right we're gonna leave who cares and they walked out and I think that is what was so incredible about these guys was kind of the, the calm and the, the professionalism that they approach this in a way that you see in movies, but most crimes, when, when you're a crime reporter, as, as I have been at some points in my life, crimes are not well thought out. They're not executed well. Right. These are, these are moments of desperation and, uh, you know, season one of our podcast, a guy escaped in an inner tube down a river, but it was moronic. He was, he was all over the place. He was running. He was throwing. I mean, yeah. whereas, whereas Jack and Alan and these guys, they were, they were really kind of professionals. So tell me about the New York heist. Yeah, these guys get to New York City, and they went up there because they had stolen a diamond off a woman who had tricked them and given them a fake stone that looked exactly they had given her a real stone and then a fake stone as a decoy and she had foisted the decoy off on them and then kind of left Miami and ran up to Long Island and they were so annoyed and kind of hurt by the fact that they had been duped by this woman they decided to go to New York to uh, exact revenge and get this stone which had eluded them um, and also have fun in New York City. And, and they went up there and they were partying and they were going to the jazz clubs and they were seeing things around town. And, and at that time, the, the J.P. Morgan gem collection had just been put 
in the Museum of Natural History. And it had the Star of India, uh, had the largest star sapphire in the world at the time, largest star ruby at that time in the world, and star stones, which I learned on this podcast. I had no idea what they are. They're kind of perfect stones, which if you shine a light through them, kind of a six-sided star of light reflect, reflects, 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 I don't even know the word, <laughs> off of it. And uh, there's two of them in the world, uh, you know, stones like this. And then they also stole the largest diamond which had been found in the United States at that time, along with a ton of other jewels which had come from this billionaire and it was at the museum of natural history i guess they had gone on a tour and one night kind of happenstance as they tell it they went to go check it out and what was interesting the way jack described it is basically these guys i think went on a lot of sort of exploratory missions and then if basically if they reached a point where all right we can't go any further they just turn around and leave but they were kind of ballsy enough and smart enough to all right well we got through this obstacle let's keep going let's keep going and so when he describes it he basically said you know we had our equipment but when they had had a few drinks um they had pre-gamed and then they had their driver uh drop them off and he and Alan, this guy, Alan Kuhn, basically started looking at it and they tested one door and they got through and then they climbed up and then they got through another window and then a window was open for them some, for some reason. And then they just said, all right, I guess we're doing this. And then uh, they, they managed to you know, steal a priceless gem collection. They got away with 24 precious gems in total, including three world-famous stones, the Star of India, the Eagle Diamond, and the DeLong Star Ruby. The museum officials indicated that the monetary value of the loss was incalculable. Despite having escaped the museum without issue and not leaving any meaningful evidence at the scene of the crime, they were well-known Miami criminals who were known to be in New York known by the underworld figures in town, but also by the staff members at the Cambridge House Hotel who tipped off police about the three hotel guests who were throwing lavish parties immediately following the heist. All three men were arrested. All but one of the stones were recovered. Jack spent two and a half years in jail for the heist. He went in as a celebrity, as part of a handsome athletic crew that casually pulled off the biggest jewel heist in American history at that time, and then threw parties for a loose group of casual acquaintances to celebrate the score. A 23-year-old Nora Ephron covered the story for the New York Post. Director Marvin Chomsky made a Hollywood film about the caper in 1976. And yet, when Murphy was released from prison in 1967, he wasn't the same gregarious jock. He was upset. In Nathan's podcast, The Sneak, he talks about all of his supposed friends who had always been there to help him spend his money, but they never came to visit him while he was in prison. For some reason, the very first thing he did when he was released was buy a gun. Jack won't talk about what happened in Rikers and if something changed there. He won't go there. Um, 
And if anything, he was really pushing a narrative on me that he had already been involved in some very violent stuff before Whiskey Creek and before he served time in Rikers. We couldn't find any evidence of that. And in fact, found evidence kind of contradicting his story that he he told us he had been involved in uh, a gang war in Boston as kind of hired muscle coming in from the inside. And this would have been before Whiskey Creek. Um, and so he won't talk about something changing at Rikers Island. He says, you know, I had fun there. We saw live music. It was great. I was friends with the prison people. It was cool. And then I got out. And that's all he'll say. But then he also said, I got out of Rikers and the first thing I did is I went and got a pistol and I came out mad. That was something he said at one point. So, you know, he came out of Rikers and within, uh, you know, he, he, he was living clean for a matter of weeks. And then all of a sudden he's involved out in, back in California in, in drug deals. And then he hatched this, or not hatched. He says he, pre- he was presented with a opportunity to move uh, stolen negotiable stocks. And when that happened, that eventually led to these murders. And it happened pretty quickly. Two women who were named Terry uh, Frank Kent and Annalie Marie Moan. Uh, Annalie was 21, Terry was 23. They were working in Los Angeles at a uh, stockbroker's firm and they met some guys in a nightclub. We don't know if Jack Murphy was there, we don't know if it was Alan Kuhn, we don't know if it was, uh, they're, they're, everyone tells a different story of who met these women first. But after meeting these men, within days, they had stolen, again, everyone has a different version, but somewhere between 488,000 and millions of dollars in these negotiable stocks. And they had stolen them from the office and uh, end up in Florida where Jack says he was introduced to them there. And he then says, uh, basically everyone agrees these, this gang of kind of, let's call them hoodlums, uh, Jack Murphy, Bobby Greenwood, and uh, all, all these guys, they were all kind of together at the time. And another guy named Sonny Gretsch, who we interviewed extensively for the podcast. And they all agreed, like, we got these stocks and we didn't know what the hell to do with them. Our fences didn't know what to do with them. We have these pieces of paper and they said they're worth money, but we, you know, they didn't know any stockbrokers. They were kind of jewel thieves. And so... Uh, that led to, again, all the, the versions of the story kind of differ, but what Jack says happened is the women, uh, basically were upset because they thought they were getting a much larger cut of the money than they were. Um, basically he said for a score like that, you take 16% and you're happy to get 16% and the rest goes to the fence or whoever they, you know, they sell on for. And they were they were probably basing that percentage anyways off the total value of the stock if you were trading them legally. Exactly. Not realizing that they're doing it all on the black market, which means you're going to get 
you know, probably 30% of the total value or something like that. Exactly. So the women, the women ultimately weren't happy with their return. They were not happy with their return, says Jack. And they also weren't happy with the speed at which things were happening or not happening. Because yeah. apparently none of these guys... And, and Sonny Gretsch tells it, Jack was literally in the bar just handing out pieces of paper to people, being like, hey, go talk to someone and let me know if you succeed. And Sonny says he put him in the ceiling tile of a bar bathroom and just hit him up there because he had no idea what to do with these things. Anyway, uh, this then leads to a boat trip and uh, where Jack says they were going to work things out with the two women. And... According to Jack, it was the two women, him, a man named Jack Griffith, and then uh, who's a now fifth unnamed man. A fifth person was on this boat, an unnamed man, who Jack says he had been linked to to help these women uh, move the stocks. And he describes going out on the boat, and an uh, argument escalates, and the fifth man this this unnamed man uh pulled out a gun and shot both of the women and within seconds they're dead and what jack says is at that point he and jack griffith then had to uh clean up the scene and that was his involvement in this crime and that's jack's version of what happened Bodies were found a day later. Um, they were, the women were weighed down, and apologies, let's get a little graphic, but the women were weighed down with concrete blocks lashed to their necks with, with wire. And, but they were put in what apparently at the time was 10 feet of water at high tide, and then at low tide was about four feet of water. And uh, a boater saw, I think, a foot. And uh, within, few days after that, uh, an eyewitness came forward who had been uh, on a dock that had refueled the boat with Jack Murphy in it. And this is something Jack never told us. We, we had to find this out. Uh, there was an eyewitness who saw the two women with, with Jack. Um, Jack says, Jack Murphy now says it was Jack Griffith who ran his mouth in a bar and that's how they got linked to it. Um, but from what we can tell, newspaper reports, legal filings, it was uh, the eyewitness linked the two men to it. The eyewitness stated that they saw four people on that boat. The two women who would ultimately become victims, Jack Roland Murphy and Jack Griffiths. Long after the trial, after Jack had been sentenced to murder, Murphy claimed that there was a third male on the boat whom he's never identified, but he claimed that this was the man who was responsible for the murders themselves. But again, Jack didn't share that detail until years later. There are multiple ways to explain that. Jack never testified. And Jack, um, you know, they pleaded not guilty. Then they pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, which he was briefly ruled insane, actually, by the state of Florida, but then that was kind of quickly overturned. Um, and they they kind of had a different theory. The defense lawyer went with a different theory. So Jack says 
He never testified, and he was never going to rat out the unnamed man who uh, was never kind of identified. Eyewitness had four people in the boat. And for us, the first time we can find mention of the fifth man is in a 2014 uh, article in Vanity Fair. That was the first time we read it. I'm not saying that it that story wasn't out there before, but that was the first time that we could find any version of that story. And there was no reference to him in the court documents? No. So oddly, a few months after Whiskey Creek, Jack committed another armed robbery, uh, this time of a wealthy socialite named Olive Wofford, while he was out on bail for the Whiskey Creek murders, Um, which I think points to a real kind of... uh, (laughs) approach that you know that guy wanted to get caught however deep in the subconsciously you know to to pull off a janky robbery months after you've been bailed out for double murder uh anyway jack ended up getting one life sentence for the murders at whiskey creek and then for the wofford robbery because it was an armed robbery and because he had priors he received an additional life sentence and 20 years so jack was sentenced to double life sentence plus 20. Griffith got one life sentence. Murphy ended up serving 19 years, and Griffith, I think, served closer to 30. Um, how are they able to get out if they're serving a life sentence? How Jack, does this work? Yeah, that was a... We ended up talking to lawyers and uh, law professors and, and learned all this interesting stuff. Basically, Jack Murphy found God um, in prison, and also went to work with a man named Louis Wainwright, who was the head of the Florida uh, correctional system. And with Wainwright and a guy named Frank Constantino, who was a ex-con turned prison bishop, actually, uh, minister, they worked with Jack to develop programs within prison and, and made Jack kind of a poster boy for the rehabil- rehabilitative uh powers of the Florida penal system or something. And because of that, at that time, Florida had not instituted mandatory minimums. So it was really up to the parole board to kind of do whatever they saw fit. And Murphy, having served almost 20 years, a bishop and the head of Florida prisons vouching for him, I think that kind of answers the question. Uh, We couldn't get kind of an official answer, but it sure seems like that's the case. I'm wondering how the victims' families feel about that. That was really the the part of the podcast that was the most work and ultimately for me the most rewarding and why I feel good that we actually went ahead and made this thing for uh, telling the story of a guy who uh, really wants his story to get out there and which made me feel queasy at times. But... Uh, tracking down the the family members of the victims who have not really uh, the two women we talked to I don't believe have spoken one had never spoken to the media it was the stepsister of Annalie Marie Moan and then we we actually tracked down the mom of Annalie Moan who's 92 years old and I don't think she's talking to press in five decades Um, and so you know they're you know, Inez, at least, the, the stepsister, 
she doesn't buy it, doesn't believe it, calls him a very talented con man. Um, and, you know, that that's kind of how we, we closed out our, our show was getting her sort of perspective on it and, you know, telling a side of the story that we felt hadn't really been heard before. Yeah, um, I guess I was kind of surprised that they haven't, that they didn't want more of a voice. I would have expected, I mean, I guess so much time has passed and they've just reconciled that justice won't be served probably. But I was really expecting them to relish the opportunity to say their piece. Were you surprised by that? What did you expect? Yeah, you know, uh, Terry, uh, Kent Frank, I always get the two names mixed up. Her husband was not interested in speaking at all. Um, they were actually separated at the time that the murder happened. And so I can understand not wanting to relive that with someone that you had already been estranged with at that time. Um, and I reached out to his daughter as well. She, she had no interest in talking to us. Um, when it comes to Annalie Marie Moan's family, uh, who her mother would marry another man and take on the name Lyles, uh, the Lyles family, they had been so hurt by what happened in the immediate aftermath of the murders and what they viewed as sensationalized press coverage and also some, from what they describe, really horrific press coverage. Um, Annalie Marie Mohn was German. Her mother was German, and she actually married an African-American serviceman who had been uh, stationed in, in post-war Germany. Uh, the interracial marriage, at least in the German press, was, according to Inez at least, framed as a possible cause for Annalie's death because it had set her up for a life of failure, and of course this happened. And um, I think, you know, I, I won't spoil too much, but when I spoke to Anna Lyles, the, the mother, um, when she heard I was a reporter, the first thing she said to me was, I don't want you to laugh at me. And I was really confused and I was like, oh man, this woman, maybe she's getting up there in age and she doesn't fully understand what's going on. But no, she had been so kind of scarred by the media coverage and the immediate aftermath, especially back home in Germany, that she still kind of has her guard up and, uh, in the end, really wouldn't be interviewed. And, and she basically said, you need to come out here and look me in the eye so I can tell that you're not going to be making fun of me. Um, and I wasn't, during a pandemic, I wasn't going to fly out and visit a 92-year-old woman. So we kind of had to leave it at that. Um, maybe um, the reason why a lot of the other stories written about Jack were because the investigator or the reporters were bamboozled by his charisma and he was able to steer him towards the sexiness of the jewel heist and i'm curious how he feels and felt about you really kind of harping on the murders and wanting to kind of investigate that detail more i slow play jack i'll be totally blunt i and i should say i i do not blame the other reporters for not tracking down the Lyles family or the, or the Frank family. I spent, most reporters don't get, I got six months with this story or, you know, if, if you count original idea, idea 
to completion. I got almost, you know, nine months with this story, which most reporters don't get. And yeah. <laughs> I had nine months with this story and I only got the interviews for the families in the last week of recording. So that was nine months in the works. Um, I just, I don't want to besmirch the other journalists, but Jack, you know, I think he was very much trying to steer me. And he actually brought up multiple times that there are good journalists and bad journalists. And he wanted to know what kind of journalist I was going to be. And the way he framed it was good journalists tell stories that are worth telling and bad journalists corner you. And he brought this up multiple times. There was one night, and this is a scene in the, in the middle of the podcast. We finished up our first dinner with Jack and he offered to drive us home and he turned the car away from our hotel and ended up driving out kind of to the water's edge and he parked the car and we just kind of sat in silence for a minute. Um, which we're kind of freaking out <laughs> in the, yeah. in the car as this is happening. We had just, we didn't even know if we were going to interview him. And now all of a sudden, a few hours later, we're, you know, it, it was a, it was a boat ramp. So he had pulled down the boat ramp to a couple inches away from the water. Um, and then he actually ended up driving again and going out on this grassy expanse overlooking the intercoastal. And he parked there. And we're just sitting there. We're sitting in the, in the silence. And then he drove us back. And as we were getting out of the car, he said something along the lines of like, you know, I, I hope you guys are the good kind of journalists, not the bad kind of journalists. Um, and I will admit for a few days, I let Jack, you know, for a while, let Jack think that I was going to be kind of one of the good ones. I, I wanted to get my research done. And... It was only really towards the end that I think he started figuring out that we weren't going to be telling the story that he wanted told. And once he figured that out, the relationship changed drastically. It went from buddy-buddy to um, very combative, which you hear in the, in the last conversation of the, of the show. Did you, were you concerned about your well-being at any point during the nine months? Uh... The moment in the car, we got back and, and my, my co-producer, Anthony, he's a scripted TV guy. He had worked on season one, but he had never done any reporting. And, and that was actually his first night ever reporting. And all of a sudden we're in a car overlooking water with a convicted murderer, you know, sitting in the dark in the quiet. And we get back to the hotel and he's like, is, is your life like this all the time? And I was like, no, man, this is... This is not what my life is like. It, you know, there was that moment. You know, Jack would make little jokes. You know, as we were leaving the last night, it was totally friendly, totally fine. And then it was, you know, I still know guys in Detroit, you know, smile, wink, wink, nod, nod. You know, they'll take care of things if I need things taken care of. Have a good trip, guys. You know, like stuff like that. Um, but, you know... I, 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 no, I, I don't, he's 82 years old and he, he hasn't committed a crime in decades. I, I don't think he, uh, would jeopardize that for a little podcast, which in the end, you know, just gets his name out there more, which I think is really the important thing to him. Um, I guess the problem that I have with it, having listened to it now is, um, 
he does admit to being on the boat when those women were murdered. But he doesn't take any responsibility for his role in the crime. You just want him to feel sympathy for the victims and for their families. And I mean, I guess the ultimate thing would be getting him to admit to something that he hasn't yet admitted to. But even short of that, if he just showed some sort of sympathy for the families and the victims themselves, and again, responsibility for his role in it, I would have thought that that would have shown a moment of growth. He doesn't. He's defiant and he's almost then pointing back at you going, hey, why are you forcing me to feel these emotions? I don't, I'm not responsible for this, you know? And he starts giving all these examples of other versions of life and society where people, how it was weird. He completely dodged the addressing of the emotion. When we were preparing for that interview, Anthony and I were going through kind of every question we could ask and every possible response. And all right, if you say this, Nate, he's going to duck this way or he's going to dodge this way or this is how he's going to get out of it. And what are you going to do to counter that or what are you going to do? And, and I'll, I'll admit I prepared for all these kind of scenarios. And all it took was asking one question about actually Boston, um, this, right. this claim he made. And all of a sudden, you know, we called it our, our jinx moment. I don't know if you saw HBO's The Jinx. Um, mm-hmm. which, yeah, where all of a sudden, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but, you know, we, we literally did at one point, like the, the A Few Good Men speech where I was just like, I just want truth, Jack. And he's like, why? Why do you want the truth? And it, all of a sudden it just devolves and he you know I, I i at that point i really didn't need to do anything you know i i didn't need to lead him down any paths or counter or argue or any i just sort of let him speak and as you brought up the one thing i tried to do at the end was give him a chance to express empathy uh, i i knew he wouldn't admit it but i thought maybe he would say you know hey i was on that boat uh I witnessed it. I take responsibility for for what happened there, but uh, that's that's not what happened. No, it was disappointing to be honest. Um, not not the your work in it wasn't disappointing. It was disappointing to not hear, considering all of his good work that he's done with prison reform and all that sort of stuff. It was disappointing to have him not, you know, take responsibility for his actions in that, even if they weren't the ultimate actions that led to their death. Absolutely. And, you know, and again, I, I think Brian Burns said at, at Sports Illustrated would, who I, I respect deeply and wrote a really fantastic piece on Jack Murphy, would sort of explain this as, you know, the result of trauma and, and Jack just isn't mentally prepared to kind of deal with it. But for me, for someone who, uh, preaches a worldview and uh is very kind of didactic and telling you the way he believes you should live your life which is something that you know he found out i was jewish he found out i was jewish and that was something that was like a project for him that week was to get me to see the light and see the, the the problems with with my faith um and and for me you know I didn't know. I, I still hadn't really made up my mind on Jack in, until that last conversation. And then I knew he had 
lied to me about a few things. And I wanted to give him a chance to explain that. I didn't know how the conversation would go, but uh, the way it did end up going, uh, I think kind of put an exclamation point on the whole sort of relationship with a guy that I, you know, spent months with. You said um, you hadn't made up your mind on Jack until that conversation. What did you ultimately make up your mind as? That for whatever reason, he will not own that. He will not own that this moment of his life, which for me, if you were going to buy into this idea of salvation and that he is, you know, Jack's offering a prescription for a way to live. And, and for a man to, I think there is a pride in that. Um, you know, he'd frame it as humility. I'm just preaching the gospel. You know, I'm just a lowly servant of the Lord. But, you know, he, he travels the world really offering people a, a guide for how to live. And for someone to do that and ask me to, and ask others to kind of believe him on that and believe him on this story of, salvation um i guess me personally not necessarily even as a journalist just kind of as a man needed him to take responsibility for that act uh in whatever form it may be and and he wouldn't do that one of the first things i asked you was why did jack participate in this i understand the ego play but there's a lot of risk, obviously, in participating. And we've even seen through, I don't know, shows on Netflix, they'll reopen investigations into things once some of these uh, the content comes out. Do you feel like he incriminated himself in anything that could be? Um... We talked a lot with the lawyers about that. And because he was actually convicted of the crime, served his time and was paroled, um, we felt that... Um, there, there wasn't really a risk of that. Um, you know, he was vague enough with other things and other claims he made. You know, he talked a lot about seeing to it that other guys had accidents. That's something he referenced a few times. Um, or uh, I was sent up there to do something you can't find in the yellow pages. That was another euphemism right. he used. And he does. He uses all these euphemisms. And if, if you listen to the show, it's like... A, a trip back in time. Um, well, it's hilarious because, again, like we kind of opened the conversation saying, he will, he wants to be acknowledged for this thing. And then as soon as you like point to the thing, he gets offended. Like, why would you ever implicate that I did this thing? It's like, you're the one coming up with this colorful euphemism to explain the thing. It's so, it's so um, paradoxical. Yeah. And that's, I mean, he wants you to know and he wants the guys in prison to know i was a tough guy i'm not the you know right. i think uh the vanity fair writer said that he said to her uh, i'm not the i wasn't always the kindly grandfather you see here today like he wants people to know right. um and he does it in kind of a faux humble act and and kind of loves playing it off but you know he wants you to know yeah i was a tennis prodigy and a violin prodigy and uh, an acrobat diver and one of the best surfers in the country, which I just kind of picked up in my free time because I felt like it. And also a tough guy. And, you know, I carried, I carried a pistol. You know, he had never told anyone that he was armed during 
the Natural History Museum heist. He told right. us he was armed and he was ready to use the gun, which is something that I told other reporters. And they're like, what? Wait, what? He was armed? You know, and was he armed? I don't know. He, he right. might have been. Um, but it was important for us to know, as he said, he said, you guys, you know, you push that camera. You're journalists. You push that camera. I was a bad guy. I pushed that pistol. That was his right. his euphemism that he always loved to say. You know, I pushed that pistol. That's what I did. And so you're right. There is that kind of uh, wanting the the mystique and the and the power that comes from being a dangerous man. But at the same time, don't poke me on details. It's my story. I'm the one who's telling it. You don't get to dictate it. And, and there's that scene in the first episode where he asked how many podcasts episodes we were planning on doing. And we said nine and he sat with a notebook and he wrote out the entire outline for our show. And he said, all right, in episode one. Yep. Yeah, he said in episode one, you'll talk about this episode two, you talk about this. And I'm there. Um, God bless Anthony. Anthony kind of kept a straight face and was nodding. I'm there saying like, who the F is this? You know, I'm ready to tell him to screw off. Cause yeah, you know, but that's Jack. He, he wants to control. Um, in hindsight, do you wish that you would have done anything differently through the process? I wish I'd been more prepared in Florida. Uh, we had to get lucky and find the right archive in Florida. And then we had to find the right newspaper clippings. And we, you know, I sort of, I would have spent another month researching before we booked the trip. We were kind of in the, let's just go down there and see what happens kind of mode. And it leads to great moments and honestly probably led to a bit more material because I don't know if I would have been able to bite my tongue in a way that I did with his kind of BS down there. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I do wish I had been a little better prepared and not let him kind of control the narrative so much while we were down in Florida, which he very much successfully did. Do you anticipate that you'll hear from him after this all goes public? Probably. Um, what's, the, what's the protocol? I'll answer his call. I'll talk to him. Will you record um, it? I would like to. I'll probably insist on it just to protect myself. Um, there's issues with uh, two-party consent states, and he's in, he's in Florida, which for listeners who don't know, if you're in a two-party consent state, both parties have to agree to be recorded. So I couldn't just flip on the recorder. Um, but if I announce it clearly and tell him what I'm doing, then uh, I would probably choose to do that. Um, talking to some other reporters, you know, at SI... Uh, according to Brian, Jack was really happy with the story because he got the cover. But then I think he read it and read it and then kind of turned on the story and decided, because Brian actually leads with the details of the murder. Um, yeah. And that was something, I guess, that Jack, at least on our call, when he kind of, our final call, he brought up that SI, like you, you guys are just digging. You're digging, you're digging, you're digging. You just want to know everything. Um so I guess I thought he was warm on that story, but apparently he's turned. Um, who knows? I mean, I don't even know if he's going to be able to f find our podcast. <laughs> so, so there's we'll that. We'll find out. Um, 
Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think you did a great job. I think that um, the podcast medium allows you to tell it in a more kind of nuanced way than shorter form or text or things that generally just kind of have to fit a certain time frame. But I also wonder if uh, there's still more to come. You know, I mean, this could be the story's not over, to be honest. Uh, Ron Howard's company just announced a document, a four part documentary is coming out on Jack Murphy. Oh, did they really? Yeah. I do not know Jack's involvement. Um, I know Jack, they were talking with Jack and, uh, he and his, uh, business partner, a guy, Dominic Fusco, they've been trying to sell a feature film on on Jack's life but they want it to be very uh evangelist which understandably uh not people trying to film a Hollywood action movie are very interested in a 40 minute coda about the saving graces of of the church um but and also he doesn't want Whiskey Creek in there obviously enough he wants it to be about the heist um so I know that a documentary is coming I have no idea how involved or not involved Jack is. Uh, I hope my last conversation with Jack doesn't screw up their access or put him on guard in a way. Cause you know, I, I, you know, I think it's interesting. I think if it is, if Jack has final cut or whatever, or can, has a say in, in what it portrays, you know, I don't know how interested I am in that, but you know, the team they've assembled, I think they'll do a really good job. So. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine they would let him have any, oversight with that uh well congratulations you did a great job yeah you're welcome i I honestly um i talk about surfing all the time all week every week and occasionally we have outside kind of reporters or documentary documentarians come in and make a piece about surfing they're inevitably almost better than any surf media generates on their own because surfers are just too close under the microscope and they also venerate professional surfers so much that they can't actually see any of their flaws. And um, there's a couple of filmmakers, uh, the Zimbalist brothers, and they made a documentary um, on this generation of surfers that ended up airing on HBO. It was called Momentum Generation. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh my God, it's so great to see a professional hand on this story that we all know and love. Uh, and so I think you did you know, a similarly good job. Um, and I'd like to see more of it. You know, It's like I, as kind of a, one of the main surf podcasters, am limited in terms of resource. So I can't quite take on 40 hours worth of tape and nine months worth of reporting for one series, but I loved, it needs to be done. This is the exact kind of surf podcast that we need. I'm excited. And for me, as just a geek who loves this world, even though I'm not by any stretch a part of it, um, you know, I think one thing I was disappointed by is that Jack has been linked to some big names in the surfing world, either kind of tangentially or just meeting him and kind of paying homage. And uh, none of them wanted to speak to me for this podcast. And I think probably wisely for their careers. It's kind of like, um, you know, the one guy I did talk to is Balsa Bill Yerkes, who's a uh, surf uh, 
owns a surf shop in in Satellite Beach and is kind of another member of the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame, one of the kind of the old guard. And and he was willing to really uh, talk on Jack's behalf and and show love for him. But uh, you know, Jack claims, you know, Kelly and I, we still talk time to time, you know, stuff like that, which I who who on earth knows how true that is. Jack loves bragging about famous people, right. but right. Uh, few other names that no one was interested in talking to me but so it goes you know i'd be apprehensive too because even if they they might have known him prior to his life of crime and whatever ends up coming out of this series could be really um ugly and why would you want to be associated with it you know like they don't know him well enough at this point to be able to pin their reputation on it yeah, and honestly, when he's met them, he's he's an old man who's got these crazy stories. Oh, that you know, that was the guy who did right. that. Oh, and did you hear he was he was uh, he was convicted of murder? No way, you know, like they don't. Right. Wh- who can expect anyone to to kind of dig that deep? And if you know, you get introduced to an old guy at a surfing convention or at a surf awards, and yeah, of course you're going to shake his hand. So, right. um, I don't blame anyone for not talking to me, but you know. Um, as kind of just a fan of the sport and someone who, you know, that was, you know, regrets of the podcast. I wish I had been able to dive into that a little deeper and sort of what kind of surfer he was, really what he contributed to the scene. I kind of had to go off the word of Jack news reports at the time, which were all kind of, he's the best surfer in the world because, you know, it's just newspapers. They're looking to kind of sum it up quickly. Um, and then, and then Balsa Bill Yerkes, who really only knew him after he had gotten out of prison. So, yeah, well, I learned a lot and it was fascinating and, uh, great work. Thank you. You're very Thank welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you, babe. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell Just like an old-time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains around my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free as long as there's a ghost that you can't see. The Sneak Season 2 is where you can hear the entire saga. It'll be nine parts, released weekly. Parts 1 and 2 actually went live today, so you can go grab those right now. I have linked to all of it on surfsplendorpodcast.com, along with images of the Star of India that 563-carat sapphire that Jack Murphy lifted from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And thankfully, they recovered it, and it still sits there on display today. I've also posted um, a Sports Illustrated video that they produced to accompany their article on Jack Roland Murphy. That is all, of course, on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Also, come check out our YouTube videos that we've been making for The Grit and Spit. Those videos are embedded with all of the surf footage that we discuss 
every week. So that's been a lot of fun. And um, the comment section over on YouTube is always lively. So click over, subscribe. That would be hugely helpful for us. And also, big thanks to NVS Fins for their support of today's show. NVS.com is their website. Our promo code is podcast. That word will save you 20% off any Apex Series fins. The fins are superior to whatever you're accustomed to riding by virtue of the G10 Autoclave laminated fiberglass yielding dense, lean construction, allowing the most refined edges and foiling. And their customs program designed for shapers is unparalleled. If you are a surfboard shaper and you want to build custom fins for one of your surfboard designs, NVS can do it for you without the large minimum order and expense that you may have been quoted by another company. Jamin and Leif are completely accessible and will gladly make small quantities uh, or even one-offs actually. So Album Surfboards has a line of customs, Dan Man has a line, and as I stated earlier, small manufacturer in Oregon, heard about us talking about the fins here, has been developing a hatchet style fin for years and so they were able to get NVS to make those for them and um, I'm grateful that they're sending me a set for me to try out so thanks for that. No job too big nor too small. SurfNVS.com and save 20% with our promo code which is the word podcast and it keeps us in business too. Thank you for that. And that's all I have for you this week. I hope that you enjoyed this show. A little bit different format than normal, but um, fascinating. I've kind of been absorbed in this story for the last couple of weeks, so I'm thrilled to be able to finally share it with you. And I hope that you're getting waves wherever you are in the world. We're in the midst of like a month and a half dry spell here in Southern California, or maybe all of California, actually. And um, there's nothing on the horizon for the next two weeks. So it's brutal. But catching up on work, catching up on um, running and other things that I neglect when the waves are good. So it is all good. All right. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back here next Wednesday. And then, of course, on Friday on The Grit and Tuesday with Scott Bass on Spit. So look for us there. And Donald Brink just dropped a new episode of Swell With My Soul today. So go grab that. All right. Until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone, and I just can't get it back.